Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, and this week, what factors led to Ireland going into level five restrictions? Well, for the next six weeks, everyone living in Ireland is being asked to undertake a mammoth task to reduce the levels of COVID-19 circulating amongst our population. It really is a lot to take in. Some of the sacrifices we made in March and April need to be repeated. For the next six weeks, we're being asked to work from home if we can, stay within five kilometres of that home, and mostly limit our contacts to those who we live with. We can meet one other household outdoors. Weddings and funerals will be limited to 25 guests and mourners. All religious services must be held online with places of worship only open for private prayer. There will be very little sport, save the elite stuff like the GA Championships and the Six Nations in rugby, and there'll be some kids training as well. Outdoor play areas and parks will stay open too, but a lot of people will be disappointed that their gyms and swimming pools are closed. All non-essential retail outlets are to be closed and restaurants, cafes, bars and pubs can operate on takeaway or delivery basis only. Hotels will be closed for social and tourist purposes. All personal service providers will be shut, so no haircuts or other maintenance until December. As per the stay-at-home order, work-at-home order, public transport will be restricted to 25% capacity. People are being asked to walk or cycle everywhere where possible. The over 70s and medically vulnerable have been asked to exercise judgment regarding activities outside their home and their interactions with others. Visits to nursing homes are suspended except for critical and compassionate circumstances, but schools will remain open. So that's where we're at with the restrictions, but how did we get here? To answer that question, I have a wonderful trio of reporters whose coverage of the COVID crisis has kept us all informed in the last seven months. Nikki Ryan, our own producer and author of our coronavirus newsletter, is double jobbing again today. And Conal Thomas and Michelle Hennessy are reporters who you'll know from previous episodes, as well as their frequent appearances at the Department of Health briefings. Michelle, I'm going to start with you um, on the numbers that we're looking at at the moment um obviously a lot of the talk is that we want to avoid hospitals coming under pressure what exactly is the situation in irish hospitals right now right well i mean i don't want to get into too many figures with people but but if, if we start with you know where we are with the virus um at the moment and people will be familiar with the 14 day incidents uh, back in april this peaked at 170 per 100,000 in the population Currently, our 14-day incidence is 261.7 per 100,000. Now, without getting too complicated, because of the nature of, of the testing we do, testing close contacts of confirmed cases, even when they have no symptoms, we are catching more cases now than we were in April. Uh, but still, we've heard from Professor Philip Nolan, who's chair of the Modelling Advisory Group, that uh, we're, we're at about half the peak in terms of the active level of infection. So that's still not a great place for us to be in. The difference between now and April in terms of hospitals is that the hospitals are now trying to do this non-COVID care, you know, that the kinds of um, services that they were delivering before COVID, before we even knew about COVID. And this includes surgeries that can inquire, uh, require intensive care afterwards. Um, and at the same time as they're trying to do this, you know, that sort of normal health services, cases are rising in the community. Now, people have questioned over the last number of weeks, you know, how can the case numbers be rising? But we're not seeing that translate into massive hospital numbers, hospitals being totally, totally overwhelmed with cases. We're not seeing very high numbers in ICU. Uh, now, part of this was because many of those vulnerable groups have continued to do some version of cocooning, uh, you know, since we started coming coming out of the lockdown that we had. 
Uh, and that's obviously been very difficult for, pe for people, you know, who were completely isolated during the lockdown and they've remained partially isolated, maybe seeing the odd person, but not meeting a lot of people, uh, maybe trying to do a lot more outdoors than they had been. And they've really been protecting themselves. But health officials have also pointed out that the way it translates into hospitals, it happens in stages. We see the case numbers rising as more people in the community start to get it. It then becomes harder to protect those vulnerable groups and for them to protect themselves, no matter what they do. People end up in hospital. It can take a few days for them to deteriorate. Then they might need ventilation and critical care. And they might also be sick with it for a prolonged period of time. So this is why we might not see it immediately translate into the death numbers. I know it's an awful thing to think about that people might suffer very terribly because we know it is a very terrible disease if you have severe illness with it, uh, that people might suffer for a number of weeks at the end of their lives with COVID. But all of this leads to delays from the point at which we start seeing quite high numbers in the community, which we're seeing now, to the point at which we, we start seeing that translation to higher numbers of deaths. You've mentioned ICU a bit there, Michelle. Can we get into the numbers there? What exactly is our ICU capacity? Right. Well, I mean, there were a lot of questions, particularly when the HSE announced its its winter plan about how many ICU beds we actually have, um, because we, we saw what's now known as the surge capacity um, during the lockdown when the hospitals were, were preparing themselves for potentially higher numbers of cases that went up to quite a high number. Pre-COVID, we had 225 ICU beds. With that temporary surge capacity, we had 354. The current capacity, permanent capacity, fully staffed is 280. Uh, and the scaling up under the winter plan uh, is supposed to bring us to 297. Now that 297 is obviously significantly below the 354, including the surge capacity that we had. But you have to understand what the surge capacity really means. You know, that, that ability to, to scale up is still there, the HSE has said. Um, but the surge capacity takes away from other services. So not only the space, like the recovery rooms, the anaesthetic rooms that would have been used as part of that surge capacity, but also the staffs. So you would have had theatre staff, for example, doing some of that work. They're now back doing the much needed surgeries at the moment that they're trying to keep going with. Um, and we've heard from the HSE as well that, you know, they really don't want to use that surge capacity. They want to be able to do it if it's needed. But the idea, even when we did have um, those 354, was to really have as, as a just in case measure, um, because they want to have a reasonable assurance that the same quality of care can be provided as, you know, if you're using your, your normal ICU bed. Um, we heard from Dr. Colin Henry, who's the, the chief clinical officer at the HSE during the week, that we did have better mortality outcomes in the early days here when we were at our peak than other European countries because they were using their surge capacity and beyond that. Whereas we were able to provide the care in a conventional setting and the staff were not completely overwhelmed. Beyond the surge, we could still provide uh, additional care to people who would need that kind of care. But the problem with that is you would have less expert staff who would be uh, relying on, you know, sort of short term training that they had on the job. And you've no guarantee of the same types of outcomes. So you really don't want to be in that type of situation. And I've spoken to critical care consultants over the last number of weeks, you know, who, who saw this coming down the line and were, who were really worried about it. And they all said to me that once the cases come into them, that's basically the final front. The front line of this is the people like us uh, following the health advice. That's what needs to be done there. And it's often, I mean, it's awful to say, it, but it, it can be too late by the time they're wading into the situation. Is there any private hospital capacity? Because a big strand of the the first lockdown was that we you know, rented out private hospital space. Is that going to be the same this time around? 
So there is an option for us to use uh, the, the private hospital capacity. Uh, and obviously, you know, there was a, a sort of a de facto takeover of that capacity um, it, during the lockdown. It is going to be a different situation this time around uh, in that we can use it if it's there, but the HSE really doesn't want to have to use it in the same way as they really don't want to have to use the, the surge capacity. Um, they don't want to get to a stage where they're using their sort of backup plans, because if, if we get to that stage, then no matter what capacity we have, we are going to be overwhelmed. At the end of the day, we really should have been investing uh, in, and you know, we hear opposition politicians hammer this point home all the time, we should have been investing over the last number of years to bring our our healthcare system to a place where it was more prepared for a pandemic. But it's not really helpful at the moment to be pointing that out because to get where we need to be with it would, would take an awful lot of money and not just money, but a lot of time that we don't have at the moment. Yeah, a lot of the science research that's published in places like The Lancet kind of often talks about the austerity measures in European countries really coming uh, back to haunt countries like us and, and Spain in the in the last few months. In terms of the numbers right now in ICU admissions, what are we looking at? So since the 15th of September, hospitalizations quadrupled over four weeks. And on Thursday, health officials were reporting an average of three deaths per day over the previous week. So that's where we see that, you know, translation of hospitalizations into people becoming very sick and then into the deaths. Now, um, the latest figures we have for Monday in terms of ICU and hospitalizations, there were 315 confirmed cases in hospital and 35 in ICU at the beginning of August, just to put that into context, there were eight in hospital and six in critical care. And, you know, we're, the, the availability of hospital beds, there were 352 general beds available yesterday and um, 272 critical care beds were open and staffed and 29 of those were available. Uh, and uh, in terms of ventilation, 20 of the COVID cases in ICU yesterday were ventilated. And I know there are a lot of questions about, you know, do we have enough ventilators? Uh, I suppose it's important to point out that not everybody needs to be ventilated. Um, and that's not to say that we shouldn't have enough. Of course we should. Um, but there are different types of care and critical care that, that people need. Not everybody is going to need a ventilator. So there's less concerns about, about the number of our ventilators? What, what they've always said along along the way is that we have enough um, for what we need now. And uh, the HSE is also building on that throughout the winter. So I mean, they, they seem to be confident enough. But then I don't think that they were expecting uh, the level of growth that we've seen, particularly over the last two weeks. Um, so, you know, we will be hearing from the HSE, I'm sure, this week. And, and that's definitely something to ask them about. Where are we with that now? And have their concerns changed over the last two weeks? Yeah, let's talk about that growth a little bit, because we had been seeing a lot younger, a lot of younger people. So say under the age of 35 um, being amongst that those positive tests. What are the numbers looking like now? Who who is in who is getting tested positive for COVID? Right. Well, as you said, we've seen that the cases increase among the younger age cohorts. And this, in a way, was a kind of a welcome thing to hear because they are less likely to experience that serious illness, to end up in hospital, to end up in ICU. You know, there, there are um, small numbers of cases among younger people and those without underlying conditions who've ended up in hospital and been very sick with it. But for the most part, younger people don't have that very serious experience with it. But when the numbers start to get to the levels that we've seen in the last couple of months, that's no longer something that we can find comfort in uh, because as we heard from the chief medical officer last week, the virus is now out of control and that's translating into an increase in the cases among over 60, 65s. Over the last three weeks in particular, the HSE every week has been saying 
the numbers among the over 65s while they're not you know massively significant they are growing in a way that we don't like and uh we currently have widespread community transmission. Our contact tracing teams, we've heard over the last two weeks now, are unable to keep up with it. They're not really able to track everywhere the virus is and everywhere it's come from. And when we have that widespread community transmission, it is inevitable that it will creep back into our hospitals and back into the nursing homes, because that's where those younger people who live in the community go to work every day. And, you know, we've already seen a few significant outbreaks in a number of nursing homes in the last two weeks. Sadly, four residents died at the Kilminchy Lodge nursing home in Port Leash, who had been diagnosed with COVID-19. And there they had 31 confirmed cases. Ten of those were among staff. And I do want to say here, um, this is something that, you know, in the early days when we had lots of large outbreaks in nursing homes, the health officials were keen to stress that it's not about blaming the staff or, or blaming people who are bringing it into the nursing homes. The issue is that if we have this widespread community transmission, we can't actually protect those younger people who work in the hospitals and work in the nursing homes from the virus. And they therefore can't protect the people that they care for in those settings. Connell, I'm going to bring you in there because um, on the com- widespread community transmission, because I'm recalling a piece I read in the Sunday Independent by May Sheehan last week, where she had looked at some of the contact tracing that was going on. A university student had gone for a drink, uh, had gone back to his roommates. Four of them ended up with COVID through a different sequence of events of parents collecting people, bringing them for lifts. A young woman ended up getting COVID. She happened to work part time in a nursing home. So you could see how easily it went from young people just going about their business, probably in a safe manner if they were in a in a bar rather than a house um, and still it would have got into a, a nursing home but how did we get to this spiraling uh, situation where it's not just localized outbreaks it's widespread community transmission where did it all go wrong um, I suppose late August would probably be the critical time for this in terms of if if you look at the cases over the summer um, from about, you're looking at probably from about late May, early June to sort of late August, they were in and around, you know, somewhere between 10 and 100 cases a day. There was the occasional spike, but it was fairly low. It was around the 25th of August we saw cases going above 100 and then increasingly above 200. And we all started wondering, well, what's going on here and how is it spreading? I suppose just to bring us back a little bit prior to late August, you're talking about mid-August here and we think about the Kildare Leash and Offaly lockdown it's an interesting parallel to say what's happening now with widespread community transmission is the virus was spreading in particular settings in those instances so what that meant was that contact tracers and public health teams could go into these settings and target it essentially lock them down and and then they would carry out what's known as serial testing in meat plant factories in meat plants uh, food processing plants and and they did it in some direct provision centers now that's obviously much different to, to community transmission where essentially we can't track where the virus is coming from and how necessarily it's spreading but i think it's probably worth pointing out that health officials yeah, Neffet knew that as restrictions were gradually eased in the first lockdown, there would be an increase in cases. But I think nobody quite foresaw what would happen in terms of the 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 the, the virus spreading throughout the community. Um, Dublin's probably the epicenter of this. This is kind of where we began to notice that we cannot we cannot actually find one particular setting where the virus is spreading. So obviously, you know, we talk about socialization, and I think it's probably worth pointing out that you know it's something that the cmo said a few weeks ago um you know one of the things one of the stark things he said and I, and I think he's right was that people simply forgot to social distance people have forgot to social distance and obviously that tie that in with you know opening gradually opening up society i'm sure some people would argue we opened it up too soon 
I don't want to say it was inevitable that there was going to be widespread. There was going, there was going, there was always going to be, I think, an element of community transmission. But I don't think anyone foresaw how widespread it would be. How linked to is that to our contact tracing system? And is there a failure in our contact tracing system, or how is it holding up? It's interesting. I I don't I don't necessarily know if it's a, a failure stuff. I suppose in terms of testing, we've the capacity for a hundred thousand tests that's gone up to about one hundred twenty thousand. I think as of this week, the difficulty is that I suppose contact tracing in of itself is a, an incredibly complex um, procedure, and the more the I suppose the longer the chain of transmission is the harder it's going to be for contact tracers. Now, the system has obviously come under enormous pressure because of because of community transmission. Um, if you think that perhaps, in, I mean, when, when we had the contact tracing system, I think properly in place, and, and the HSC were talking about this in, in sort of June, July, you were looking at about probably the average number of contacts being about three. But the reality is now that we've widespread community transmission, it could be between, anywhere between 10, 20 and 30 people that, that the put the contact tracers then need to get in touch with. And this is the interesting thing, I think it comes back a, a bit what Michelle was saying. I think the um, in the early days of the pandemic, there was this advice to, if you feel any symptoms or you're worried you were a close contact of a case, you need to self-isolate, you need to stay in your room. And that kind of went off the grid. And this is perhaps where we maybe did keep, take our eye off the ball in terms of messaging. That was a very strong mess throughout uh, March, April and May and throughout the summer. We didn't really hear too much about that. And now that the contact tracers have come under such pressure, the CMO is now issuing that advice that we, we cannot, we simply don't have the capacity right now to trace every single person because community transmission is so widespread. So the message is, again, if you have any symptoms, stay in your room. Don't leave for, for any reason at all. Yes, that's ex- that's exactly it. And I think that's going to be key now over the next six weeks, because we always hear this kind of phrase that, you know, you know, cases have been seeded, seeded is the word, you know, cases were seeded two weeks ago. So it's obviously going to be several weeks before we see the effects of, of this, um, these restrictions. And I think it's a really important message to start sending out there that if anybody does have symptoms, if anybody worries that they are a close contact to, you know, arguably as an individual, think about it and just say, well, look, would I rather put added pressure on the public health teams that are already already under enormous pressure or simply just maybe have a bit of cop on and just take the more cautious route and stay self-isolate. We mentioned nursing homes and we ran through some of the figures there with Michelle but one of the the, the biggest problems that we had and the, the huge amount of our death toll did come from from nursing homes directly in the in the last wave. Are we handling the sector differently this time around um, or do we know what concerns are there if any? There's, I think there's a number of concerns. I think firstly, just, just to go back to what Michelle was saying in terms of uh, the CMO, uh, I think as we all know, is that the, the, as community transmission uh, grows, we, we're not going to be able to keep it out of vulnerable settings. So there's that. And I think it's a responsibility on all of us to, to you know, not go visit that grandparent, although, of course, we can't now under these new restrictions unless they're compassionate grounds. The, the, the sector is a lot more prepared. I think it was, it was um, the CEO of Nursing Homes Ireland, Ty Daly, described uh, at the weekend as hyper vigilant. Obviously, they've had a number of months to prepare in terms of things like PPE. Um, but there are, I suppose, you might say cracks emerge and as much as there seems to be, there's a concern at the moment and um, that basically they're 
nursing homes around the country are going to lose frontline staff to HSE and other public health roles. And this is something that um, Ty Daly raised this week. And he's saying that, well, look, it makes no sense to take them out of such a vulnerable setting when we're going to need them most. And I think it ties in a little bit to what um, the HSE Chief Operations Officer, Anne O'Connor, actually said a few weeks ago at a HSE briefing, which was quite interesting, was that what they're beginning to notice is that some nursing homes are not low on staff, not just it seems, although the HSE wouldn't say it at the briefing, that that is that that almost poaching is happening. But it's actually the reality is that obviously nursing home staff are themselves, much like frontline nurses and doctors, are going to be hyper vigilant about that. So this so if they feel that there's any, you know, even slight symptom, a cold or sore throat, they're staying at home and that's that's proving problematic because as the cases are getting back into nursing homes, they're losing staff because they don't have because staff are taking more sick leave um, and I think just in terms of where we're at with nursing homes at the moment yes they're much more prepared but we now have 170 nursing homes affected by this um, and that's about a third I think of all nursing homes uh, in Ireland there's currently about 40 open clusters in nursing homes and HICWA confirmed this week that in the last month or so there's been 28 unexpected deaths now that doesn't necessarily mean they're COVID because it could take a while to to confirm that as we've seen but it's obviously a worry and, and I think I think we all hope that these new restrictions will hopefully nip that in the butt because we were not gonna be able to keep it out of nursing homes much longer really yeah, because these restrictions, level five restrictions, they were obviously were recommended a number of weeks ago by Neffet. Uh, the government didn't go with them then. They have changed their mind or thought that now was the right time rather than a couple of weeks ago. What's the relationship between the advisors and, and the ministers now? Um, I think a lot of work has gone into kind of repairing what, what we all saw as quite a, a frayed relationship there for a few days. Just to take us back, I suppose Neffet recommended we move to level five for four weeks on Sunday the 4th of October. The CMO, uh, Dr Tony Holden, wrote to government and then it, it obviously got out into the media um, and there was su- significant coverage of tension there between Neffet and the government. The government obviously subsequently rejected it. The government felt that, that the country wasn't ready. Now, just talking to a few you know, sources, uh, senior officials on Neffet, it seems that in the days preceding that advice being rejected, a lot of work went into, I suppose, repairing the relationship. Uh, I know that Dr. Tony Holohan and um, that week went and met with the Secretary General, uh, Martin Fraser, um, described to me as source to both two uncompromising characters, Dr. Holohan and Martin Fraser, which is an interesting description. Um, I think we avoided probably a long-term rift, if that makes sense. Um, I, I, I get the sense that things are, are better now. Um, I actually found it interesting um, at the, the press briefing when they were announcing the move to level five for, for the country last night. Uh, Lear Varadkar, the Taunashev, was actually asked about the comments he'd made about Neffet, um, you know, criticising Neffet. And, you know, at, at one stage he said, you know, they're not going to have to uh, be on the pandemic unemployment payment if, if we go to level five, which was, you know, considered quite a snide remark to make. Um, and when he was asked about it last night, he very noticeably downplayed exactly what he had said and he specifically said you know I wasn't critical of the chief medical officer and even though people decided to present it in that way Uh, and you know he was saying that you know now we've seen the last two weeks we tried level three and he said I think it was worth trying level three but unfortunately it didn't have the impact that we hoped it to have so I mean I don't think he's going to to let 
himself be be blamed for any of what's happened over over the last couple of weeks. And I do think that both on the government side and on Neffet's side, as as Conal has said, you know, they're they're trying to put any uh, any concept of there being tensions between them to bed now because it really adds to what is already a very confusing situation for people. Yeah, one of the things that was being said a couple of weeks ago when this initial move to to level five was was mooted was that we would have been a massive outlier in Europe. Michal Martin said in his statement that we will have one of the strictest regimes, but there are other places in other regions that are moving more towards stricter restrictions or or lockdowns. Nikki, you've been having a look at them, and the one closest to home, obviously, is Northern Ireland. We share a border. Um, what happens there obviously impacts what. Um, happens south of the border. What are the latest details on the situation there? Is it still as calamitous as it was um, a couple of weeks ago? Um, yeah, it, has, it really is. It has it has shown very few signs of improvement. I mean, their case numbers on paper are roughly the same as ours, but per capita, they are much, much higher due to their uh, smaller population. So the six counties in Northern Ireland, they have been placed under tighter restrictions. It's not quite lockdown like we have here. It's actually, when you look at the details, probably closer to level three under our living with COVID framework. And then last week, we saw the Ulster counties of Donegal, Monaghan and Cavan. They all moved to level four due to the fact that they share a border with Northern Ireland and Northern Ireland had introduced these tougher restrictions. There's a few interesting things to look at here because, you know, of course, Donegal has a high rate of infection um, and has had it for a few weeks now. There's a lot of cross-border movement between Donegal and Derry, um, which is also an area badly affected. So we can't say for sure about the level, what what level of impact this cross-border movement is having, um, but it certainly does seem to be some level of a factor. But I mean... In Northern Ireland, the restrictions haven't really had time to settle in and have a proper effect. BBC News have a few interesting quotes from a doctor who um, is working at a Altna Galvin Hospital in Derry. Um, he's describing the situation there like a war zone. And he says that they're kind of quite fearful that they could reach, reach saturation point in terms of their capacity um, soon enough. We could spend this entire podcast talking about uh, what's happening in Northern Ireland. Um, we did that. <laughs> we did that. Um, so I think we have we sat down with one of our contributors, Dominic McGrath, um, a couple of weeks ago to talk about Northern Ireland. And that episode is kind of well worth listening back to now in light of, you know, the increased restrictions in the Republic. There has been a lot of talk of what's happening in other European countries. Can you run through what restrictions are being put in place um, and why? Well, yeah, I want to focus on two um, countries in particular, um, Belgium and the Czech Republic. In Belgium, they look like they might not be too far away from a full lockdown. And remember, Belgium was hit very, very hard during the first wave. And their um, health minister is now war- warning of a tsunami of new cases. So new restrictions have come into effect there. There's a curfew from midnight to 5 a.m. Bars and restaurants have been closed. Um, there's also something that we briefly thought about introducing here um, in our own restrictions, but we didn't introduce it, which is stopping the sale of alcohol from 8 p.m. each night. Um, their household um, mixing restrictions are they're different to ours. Each individual can choose one other person from another household to be a close contact and their entire household can bubble with four other people. And then you can change that that group of four people every two weeks. So they have a lot more nuance in terms of their support bubble. Otherwise, you know, it's, they're very similar to us. You know, the schools are open and people are being advised to work from home, um, but they may end up having to step up these restrictions even further. I mean, like we could also talk about Italy or France or Spain here because so many countries in Europe are having real difficulties right now. But one that 
I want to focus on because it's flown under the radar is the Czech Republic or Czechia, as it is now called. But they're really struggling right now. Um, they've recorded more deaths in the past few weeks than the previous few months combined. Um, and the government there has openly admitted that they lifted the restrictions too early in the summer. So now they've reposed a range of measures. They already had, you know, the mandatory use of masks or the mandatory wearing of masks outdoors. Um, but now schools are moving online. Just six people can gather outdoors. Their pubs and restaurants are now closed. And, you know, in a similar way to our lockdown, um, they're now considering whether more extreme measures need to be taken um, in the next couple of weeks to kind of sum up the situation they're facing. Um, they're calling for Czech doctors who are living abroad to return home which is something that we haven't really quite heard of since March and April. So that's quite a, quite a dire situation there. Um, before we move on from this, I just want to say as well that we are one of the few countries that are introducing these this kind of national lockdown, these national level restrictions. Currently, most places are looking at very targeted measures. So you have one part of, of Germany that at the time of recording, um, just before we started recording, they've gone into lockdown. In France, um, right now, they're targeted at individual urban areas. Um, and of course, the same as in the UK, where there are standoffs between local government and national government over the severity of the restrictions that need to be imposed. Yeah, so there's a lot of places grappling with the same kind of debates we are here about whether lockdown is the best strategy, whether we should go for, um, you know, herd immunity, zero COVID, seesaw approaches. Um, you've been writing in the last 24 hours about the WHO's position on lockdowns. What what did they say about these kind of really strict restrictions? So the WHO's view on lockdowns, it's very nuanced. It's very hard to sum up in a soundbite. But essentially, they believe that lockdowns should only be used when the rate of the virus, the number of cases of virus in a country has spiraled out of control. So essentially that there are too many cases and you can't stay on top of them with your contact tracing and they pose a threat to the sustainability of your healthcare services. So they don't rule out the use of them completely. But what they really want countries to do is to implement these really solid contact tracing regimes and have their kind of primary defences, that is, you know, hand hygiene, respiratory etiquette, um, social distancing, have all of those really solid. Um, and if they fail and if the contact tracing fail, well, maybe then you have to use um, a lockdown. Um, and that was kind of something that struck me in Michal Martin's speech um, announcing the level five restrictions. It was that he mentioned a potential cycle between um, high levels of restrictions and then lower levels of, of restrictions. And that's really something that the WHO want countries to avoid. They want to avoid that cycle. They're not saying you can't use a lockdown. They're just saying that you should really be trying to implement um, really strong measures before you get to that stage. I think we're all with the WHO there. Thanks so much, Nikki, for coming in and explaining that to us and for recording and doing everything else that you're doing at the same time. And thank you to Conal and Michelle as well. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Sinead. Thanks, Sinead. Thank you for listening to The Explainer and a big thank you to Nikki, Conal and Michelle for all of their work on this episode. If you read the journal, you may have seen our appeal in the last few months for you to support our journalism. It's a difficult time for media as advertising revenues have fallen drastically during the pandemic, but we are and want to keep providing you with valuable, accessible journalism. Loads of you felt it is important for society to have that open access to news and good information like this podcast and have contributed. 
A lot of you asked if there was a way you could give more regularly. We now have options for you to become a supporter monthly. And if this is something you'd like to do, please head to thejournal.e forward slash contribute. This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by executive producer Christine Bohan, producer Aoife Barry, and assistant producer and tech operator Nikki Ryan. If you're enjoying the episodes, please leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. And more importantly, share with a friend who you think will enjoy them. Thank you and catch you next time.